Uh, would you please um, rise and uh, help sing our first song, uh, number 10 in the hymnal, O Worship the King. Good evening. We have a, a hymn service planned tonight. So we have nine hymns. That was the first. And we have eight more to look forward to. We also have a few hymn stories to go over. And this is the first one. So our next hymn is Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah by William Williams. Um, it was written, the, the author came from Wales. Wales is traditionally the land of song. And the Welsh people may well be the most enthusiastic singers in the world. Or so says this author. It is not always the custom, it was always the custom for men to sing on the way to the coal mines, and although it's not much done today, but the powerful and melodious strains of their singing still fill the air at rugby matches and other great outdoor events. Choirs abound in every town and village, and their music is popular with audiences everywhere. Wales has given the world of professional singing more than its quota of national and international artists. In the last couple centuries, a number of great spiritual revivals have swept the land, and during these, music and singing played a major part. Several times during these revival services, the sermon was interrupted by spontaneous outbursts of congregational singing, and this was often used by the Holy Spirit to move hearts to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. However, not only has Wales given us singers and singing in abundance, it has produced its fair share of hymn writers. One such writer was William Williams, a lay preacher who lived towards the end of the 18th century. At first, he studied as a medical student, but then decided to enter the ministry of the Church of England. 
However, this didn't work out, so he switched to open-air preaching in Wales. Williams was a tireless servant of the Lord, and during the 40 years of his ministry, he traveled almost 100,000 miles on foot and horseback, preaching and singing wherever he went. He wrote over 800 hymns, of which the best known by far is Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. So please turn to number 51. next hymn we have is What a Friend We Have in Jesus, written by Joseph Scriven. Only the Lord and the man in question really know the burdens of sorrow and affliction that were heaped upon the writer of this great hymn. One thing we do know, however, is that it is a beautiful and blessed hymn that would never have been penned if the author had not known trouble. The man was Joseph Scriven, and he was born near Banbridge, in the heart of the rolling hills of Country Down, Northern Ireland. After graduating from Dublin's Trinity College, he seemed set for a brilliant career and a happy life and was engaged to be married. But tragedy struck. His fiancée was accidentally drowned on the very eve of their wedding, and Joseph was plunged into his first great experience of sorrow. In the providence of God, it was, a tragedy, it was this tragedy which brought him to a personal knowledge of Jesus. In 1845, Scriven sailed for Canada to start life anew and leave his sorrows behind. But it was not to be, for ill health dogged him and he was forced to return to Ireland after only two months. Two years later, he set sail for Canada again to take up a teaching post. In this, he was successful and later graduated to the position of private tutor to the children of a military captain. Life at at last seemed worth living and prospects were continually improving. He met and fell in love, this time with a charming young woman of 23. They were engaged to be married. However, bitter disappointment was once more his unhappy lot, for this young lady was stricken with serious illness and died before their marriage. Cheated for the second time out of the prospects of a happy marriage, 
He became the victim of severe depression and declining health. But despite all this, he never gave up his personal faith in the Savior. He settled in Port Hope, Ontario, and was the manager of a small dairy. He became known as the local Good Samaritan, helping the poor and underprivileged, sharing food with the needy, and giving them clothing. However, all these good deeds may well have been forgotten if Joseph Joseph had not written 24 lines of poetry to comfort his mother, who was suffering from severe illness. Through his trials and afflictions, Scriven had come to know the Lord in a very personal way, not only as Savior, but also as friend. Thus he could write, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Number 435 in our hymn books. we will sing a medley of three hymns back to back number 201 grace greater than our sin Uh, number 202 amazing grace 203 and can it be most of you know the story behind amazing grace but if you don't uh, we'd like to read it today March the 21st is a day to be remembered by me. I have never suffered it to pass wholly unnoticed since the year 1748. Hello? On that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me from deep waters. So wrote John Newton in his autobiography, aptly titled, Out of the Depths. It was on that memorable day that Newton came into a personal, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Ever since he had been a young boy, 
John Newton had dreamed of following in the footsteps of his father, a sea captain. At the tender age of 11, he joined his father's ship, which sailed the warm blue waters of the Mediterranean, and for the best part of the next 20 years, that ambition was realized. Life for the young mariner was by no means a matter of plain sailing, however. Growing up, he soon learned the ways of wickedness to his terrible cost. He fought with his father, clashed with his employers, was flogged for desertion, and finally ended up in jail. Punishment did nothing to change him, and on his release, he continued his immoral living with unrestrained debauchery. Eventually, by a long sequence of tragic events, he found himself employed in one of the most despicable of all trades in those days, slavery. What a poor, miserable, wretched sinner John Newton turned out to be. And yet, it was in the Lord's great plan to deliver him and make something of him. Here's how it happened. The year was 1748, and it was the month of March, when the seas are at their most violent. A raging storm was blowing off the northwest coast of Ireland, and Newton and his ship were caught in the midst of it. Thundering waves pounded the helpless vessel again and again, crashing over the decks, filling it with water and threatening to send it and its crew to the bottom. Newton and his shipmates strained at the pumps, but it seemed a hopeless task as the mighty waves broke relentlessly over them. The ship was just about to break up when Newton, fearing for his very life, saw a ray of hope. If this will not do, then the Lord have mercy on us, he cried. And then the thought of mercy came to him again. What mercy can there be for me, he wondered, but nevertheless began to pray in earnest. In a remarkable way, God answered and the storm was abated. That memorable day, as Newton later referred to it, was March 21st, 1748, and he was then 23 years old. He finally gave up seafaring in 1755 and was appointed tide surveyor at Liverpool, where he became acquainted with George Whitefield and John Wesley. He began to study Greek and Hebrew and in 1758 applied to the Archbishop of York for ordination to the Church of England ministry, but was refused. However, in 1764, he was offered the courtesy of the parish of St. Peter and St. Paul at Olney in Buckinghamshire and was ordained by the Bishop of Lincoln. Three years later, the poet William Cowper, of whom we'll hear later in this book, settled in the parish and the two men became firm friends. Together they published Olney Hymns, for which Newton himself wrote a number of pieces, including How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, and most famous of all, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace has been a firm favorite with Christians everywhere for many years. I'm sure it will always remain so. It is, after all, Newton's own testimony in song, telling the marvelous story of his transformation from spiritual blindness to sight, and all through grace. In 1779, Newton left only to become rector of St. Mary Woolnoth in London. There he continued to exercise an important and fruitful ministry for the remaining 28 years of his life. Living in the capital city and close to the seat of power in government, he was able to influence many in authority. Among them, William Wilberforce, the future leader in the campaign to abolish slavery. That must surely have given the former slave ship captain particular satisfaction. John Newton was also a great writer of devotional letters. These are widely published, and some would say were were his greatest contributions to the evangelical movement of those times. He died in London on December 21st, 1807, having served the Lord and his church faithfully for almost 60 years. Towards the end of his life, he often told his audiences, my memory is nearly gone, but I can remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. On his tombstone in the churchyard of his former parish at Olney are these words, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. What else can be said other than that John Newton was well qualified to preach and describe God's amazing grace? That's um, 
So we're starting with song 201, Grace Greater Than Our Sin.
trying to do too many things at the same time here. All right. Now the part I'm most nervous about. So, when Sim asked Peter and I to put together a music service, he said, you know, if you could throw a quick message in there somewhere. So, I agreed. So, why we sing? Um, Tonight we have an opportunity to sing and make music to the Lord. Singing, it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I grew up in a home in a church that loved music. Singing was a big part of our worship services, and I loved the harmonies of the hymns that we sang. I grew up in a Mennonite church, and four-part harmony was the standard. To this day, I still think of it as the way hymns should be sung. Music and singing were a part of our family gatherings, and school choir trips were my sports. In high school, I skipped gym class one year to join the senior choir and took part in a choir trip to Florida. The mass choir experience was glorious, singing with 400 young people and absolutely filling the space with music. So why do we sing? When we gather here together for worship, why is music a part of our service? Perhaps you share my love for music. Perhaps you don't, and sports or cars or cooking or something else is more your thing. Perhaps you come here and you patiently wait to get through all this music fluff and get to the real message, you know, the meat and potatoes. Well, I'm afraid you may be disappointed tonight. My short message is likely to be made shorter by nervousness. When we gather together here weekly, we include not only the preaching of God's word, but also singing, worshiping God through our voices and music. So what's that all about? God's heart for music is evident throughout scripture. Even a casual reading of the Psalms reveals numerous references to music. Psalm 96, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 47, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. In just these few verses, we're commanded to sing seven times. All told... The Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. The longest book in the Bible, the Psalms, is a book of songs. And in the New Testament, we're commanded to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Colossians and Ephesians. In preparing this short message, I discovered that the Bible says that God sings. Zephaniah 3 says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So God sings. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I didn't know that. And Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, celebrated Passover with his disciples. And after he instituted the Lord's Supper, it says they sang a hymn before going out to the Mount of Olives, Matthew 26. We worship a God who sings. He made us in our image, in his image, and he wants us to be like him. Nevertheless, music causes controversy in church. What type of music should we play? Should it be hymns or psalms or praise songs, all of the above, none of the above? What about accompaniment or instruments or clapping or even drums? There are so many opinions on the matter. We all have preferences and musical tastes and assumptions about what may be right and proper. God doesn't provide all the details, but he does supply clues. We are commanded to make music and to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We read references to using accompaniment, trumpets and harps and flutes and horns and other instruments that play melody and background. And yes, we even read about percussion, cymbals and tambourines and castanets. Of the 38,000 Levites, David set 4,000 of them aside for the ministry of making music, a tenth of the temple staff dedicated to setting the tone with instruments and song. That's some worship band. So what else does music do? It helps us remember words. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Music plays a role in letting the message about Christ in all its richness dwell in us. We use songs to teach our children about the truths of God. Jesus loves me, this I know, 
For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. That's our faith in its simplest terms. We use songs to teach doctrines of our faith. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. That's doctrine. The perseverance of saints, the assurance of our salvation, the expectation of Christ's return, faith in his power over darkness. We use music to try to describe the vastness of our God. Oh, love of God. That's probably too high. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchments made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Every man on earth writing with oceans full of ink and skies made of parchment, and we still can't fully describe or contain the love of God. It's overwhelming in its awesomeness. Many of our songs help us describe the love of God, the power of God, or the majesty of God. We store countless songs in our memories, ready to be recalled at a moment's notice. During any week's sermon, we find songs popping into our head when certain scripture verses are read. When an old song you haven't heard in years comes on the radio, do you find somehow you remember the words? Do certain songs remind you of people or places? Music does all these things. There's a country song that says, Ain't it funny how a melody can bring back memories, take you to another place in time, and even change your state of mind. So we sang a hymn earlier. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That song reminds me of my Oma. My Oma Taves, it was her favorite song. She always asked me to play it whenever I was at her house. And I think of her whenever I hear it. And she died of cancer when I was in high school. And I was able to play that song for her at the reception after the funeral. Music is powerful. It can be wielded for good or for evil. The same power that music has to help us remember good lyrics helps us remember the bad ones. And we must be careful what we listen to and what it's teaching. Studies show that our children often notice the lyrics and hear them even more than we do. Our elderly parents or grandparents, even when their memories are fading, often remember their favorite songs. They may not even recognize their family, but they'll perk up and smile at a beloved hymn. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It is the words of Christ that are to dwell in us richly. It matters what we sing. A New Testament scholar once said, Show me a church's songs, and I'll show you their theology. It's true. The lyrics have a greater impact on us than we realize. We should sing words that God wants us to remember. Music is also greater than words. Music contains emotions, assurance, joy, peace, sorrow. Music can lift our spirits when we are low. It can turn our hearts away from our circumstances and back to God. It can keep us from sin. Saul, when he was tormented by an evil spirit, hired David to play the harp and it soothed him. Music has power to calm us and even make evil spirits flee. Martin Luther once said, 
Music is one of the fairest and most glorious gifts to God, to which Satan is a bitter enemy, for it removes from the heart the weight of sorrow and the fascination of evil thoughts. Many mornings I may wake up with a song. Perhaps it's there because we've sung it recently, but not always. Sometimes I'm convinced it's a song that God has placed in my heart, something that I need for that day. I like to pray for my children that they will have a song in their hearts. Music is prayer that our heart sings. We sing to God because he has triumphed gloriously. We sing to God because he is worthy of praise. We sing to tell each other the story, God's story, to proclaim the good news of the gospel in song. By singing, we magnify God and make much of him. And John Piper does a wonderful job of explaining what magnifying means. There are two ways we can magnify something. The first is with a microscope, to take something small and make it large enough to see. This is never how we magnify God. The second way to magnify is to take something vast, like the distant horizon or the night sky, and aim binoculars or a telescope at it to try to bring a piece of it closer so we can see it more clearly. This is how we magnify God. Our God is vast beyond our imagination. He spoke the whole universe into existence. He created the whole world, every animal, plant, tree, and every one of us, and he holds us in his hands. Without him, we would not even take our next breath. He sent his son to pay the price that we could never pay and set us free from the just punishment of our sins. And he rose from the dead, conquering death to bring us new life. This God is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. He is the great I am. He is the God we sing to. We sing to make much of God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is holy. He is Lord. Let's close by reading Psalm 100 together. It's number 708 at the back of our hymnals. Well, I guess not in the brown one. 709 is Psalm 100. Check your, I don't know if they're the same or different, but look for Psalm 100, 708 or 9. And we'll read that together. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Lord, thank you for the gift of music, for sharing your joy of singing with us, your creation. Thank you for putting a song in our hearts and on our lips. Teach us to put you first and keep you first, to let your words dwell in us richly. Teach and admonish us in your wisdom that through singing and making music in our hearts, we would be open to your truths and would always be thankful. Amen. The next song is 514, In My Heart There Rings a Melody. And then we'll do, uh, well, I'll announce the next one after. 514.
Next one is 542, when we all get to heaven. And we'll close with 556. Now thank we all our God. Oh, sorry, before we close, I'm supposed to uh, do a closing. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thank you for this time we've had here tonight. Thank you for the music that we've made and, and, and chance to, to be together and, and spend this time with you. Lord, we praise you and we honor you. And we, we seek to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. And a reminder again, next week, uh, next evening, there's a baptismal service on May 1st in the evening and then May 15th in the morning. Now thank we all our God, 556.